This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Para-X Radio Network. I wow, that was my fault. I apologize. There you there go. go. See, see? Rookery 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 going on, on. And, and that's, that's how, how it is. is. So, we so have, we have announced announce I'm very happy, happy today. Today's probably, probably one of the first shows, shows where we're actually, actually doing, doing a show. show. Uh, not, not based, based around a metaphysical so we're going to do a show to show try to educate, educate our, our audience on a top topic topic dear to mind, mind, which is finance, finance and, and, and economics, economics, which, which we'll be having let me tell you something. Us. Let me tell you folks something. I'm not an economist. Economist. Yeah, no, <laughs> I no, can't no, even no, say no, the no, word. No, no, no. You know, I I go out, I work, I make money, I collect the money, and I spend the money. You know. So Andrea, pursuing his higher education with the MBA, I, I, he gave me a quick little economics lesson, taught me some terms I didn't even know. So in preparation, but I, I'm going to tell you, before we get into this, before we introduce tonight's guest, why haven't you signed up yet for the shape-shifting 365? Go to AndreaVenomous.com forward slash shapeshift get all the details this is a groundbreaking class a year-long course that i will keep preaching would be a tremendous premiere primer to any other deeper form of magical work i appreciate, I appreciate the kudos, kudos sir, sir. uh and we're, and we're starting, starting to move the, the lesson to video, video now, now. starting to work on that and, and uh, uh, as, as it was announced, announced on, on our YouTube, YouTube channel, channel or my YouTube, YouTube channel, channel um, we, are we are currently in the in process with Deeper, deeper Down, down and Quantum Life Science, Science Institute, Institute of forming a 501c3 uh, for uh, the purposes, purposes of uh, education and, and supporting, supporting the arts. arts. And we, and we will be getting into center, center soon. soon. So, so I've said it here on Deeper Down. First, well, second after my YouTube channel. So there you go. Good things are coming, folks. Now, Andrea, a whole bunch of people just got through, and some people are actually still still working on the, the previous 30-day challenge over at domagic.com, with a K. 
Uh, I believe you can also still get there through magical30.com as well, correct? Yeah, yeah I'm trying, I'm trying to, get to get that, that resolved. resolved. Uh, I just, I just have had working a lot of hours. hours. Which gotcha. We'll, we'll get to that, that whole working, working extra, extra hours, hours and squeezing, squeezing the production, production out of us, us uh, for, for a very, very little game. game. Yes, especially when some of you, including Andrea, are salary workers. So, so uh, yeah, yeah. So, if you so go to gamemagic.com, uh, the, the current challenge, challenge which we're going to start, start right now, now um, is, is in fact what we so, simply call, call Enchantment Plus. That's a, a laugh kind, kind of title. title. It really it is. You have, you have to have a life, life plan, plan, and then, and then you need the meditation, self work, work or, or external work, whichever you want, want to make to sure, sure that you're matching and doing your own life coaching at the same time. You move forward. That's the third challenge of. Bettering, bettering your, your world by, by spiritual means, means as, as well as, as bettering, bettering your world, world through, through actual, actual life, life changes. changes. Uh, and that's, that's the challenge, challenge basically. And you can, you can get, get the more, more details, details at dumagic.com. Uh, so, so and in the last, the last challenge, challenge, it was phenomenal people life, life changes. I can't, I can't even begin, begin to talk, talk about, about without, without spending, spending a whole, whole hour just on that, that, which we will in a later show, the amount of life changes that have had happen. Since, since I did, did colleague, colleague for my, for my uh, challenge. challenge. Well, most definitely. We will be bringing some of those participants on the show later on. Correct. Correct. We will. We will. Very, Very soon. soon. So without, so without further, further ado, ado, I'd like, like to... to we're going to we're talk, going to talk about a difficult topic, topic today, today, but one, one that, that I think is critically important, important especially, especially, and there's a little, little bit of politics, but we're not going to go into politics, politics, we're going to stand, stand the facts, facts. But, it's but it's especially important given, given the, the current, current Trump, Trump president, president, the Brexit, Brexit and, and uh, a, lot a lot of details uh, that our media is basically failing us on how the economy works. And, and the principles, the principles of, labor of labor and, and all, all the, components. the components. We get, we the, get five the five second cheap inversion, inversion, which doesn't, doesn't even present, present any kind, any kind of, of facts. facts. And well, today, today we're, we're going to go into a little bit deeper, deeper into, into how economies, economies work, work to really, really try, try to meet the goal, the goal of what our 501c3 is going to be, which is, is an educational goal for the Quantum Science Institute. And talk about... Economies, economies and, and different, different styles, styles of economies, and what the, the media has to, to, how they present it, as well as some, some alternatives to the dominant, dominant narratives of what, what and how economies work. work. Dominant, dominant and narratives, narratives that, that our guest, guest tonight would say, would say and, and has relative evidence in his, in his book, is, is false. false. And does, and does not actually, the statistics and the data do not actually support those dominant Economic, economic theories. theories. And tonight, you're going to learn a way of thinking about economics that you and our society are not really probably used to. Michael Roberts is tonight's guest, and he is an economist who has worked in the city of London, England for over 30 years. But he is also a Marxist economist. He wrote The Great Recession, a Marxist view that had predicted the great financial collapse and slump of 2008-2009. In 2016, he wrote The Long Depression that described the aftermath of that slump as a new depression like the 1930s. Now he has co-edited a series of papers that argue that the main calls for regular and reoccurring recessions and slumps in the major economies of the world can be found in Marx's law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. 
first developed some 150 years ago. His new book, The World in Crisis, brings together the work of young Marxist economists from around the world. How are you doing tonight, Michael? I'm very pleased to be on the show with you, Andre and Jason. It's really good. Well, we thank Michael for joining us because it's what, like after one o'clock in the morning for you right now? It is, but you know, we old people, we stay up late these days and get up early so we can manage. Excellent. I know Andrea had a question for you, Michael, in regards to comparisons of economic systems. Okay, it's far away. I think, I think we're, we're actually, actually having, having some technical, technical difficulties, difficulties, but I'll, but I'll try, try to ask for it. The, the people, people at Paradox are saying there's, there's an echo, echo, and Michael and you sound, sound fine, fine, but there seems to be an echo, echo for me. me. Uh, I don't uh, think I don't you think heard, do you, Jason? I don't hear any echo at all. Well, one well, of the... I'll, 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 try I'll try to, to fix that on my end. end. One, of the, one of the questions that I, that I, I want to start, start off with is there's, there's two real, real dominant, dominant economic models that, that I think I most, most people, people understand, understand, but they don't, they don't use the terms. terms. One is one a Keynesian uh, economic, economic model, which, which I'll let you I'll summarize. summarize. And then there's, and then there's the, the austerity, austerity model, model, which people, I think, understand strictly economics. And maybe you can talk about those two dominant models and how they both... Kind of, kind of fail, fail to, to explain, explain what's going, going on, on and what happened in 2009 or 2008 when we had the recession. recession. Yeah, Jason, I think uh, if, you, um, if your listeners go back to 2007, everything seemed to be going great. Uh, economies were booming. Uh, people were getting... Homes and the homes prices were rising, employment was full, everything looked great. And then suddenly we had this massive crash in the banking and financial sectors, not just in Wall Street and the US, but across the world, and credit dried up. And what followed then was a huge uh, drop in uh, employment. People lost their jobs, they lost their homes, defaults everywhere and the mortgages, not just in the US, but also across the world. And then it led to a, a deep, deep slump in production, output, income. And since then, things have been, still been very difficult. I, we know that in the US, people have jobs, but they're not jobs with very good pay. Uh, they're temporary, they're part-time. People are trying to make self-employment to, to make ends meet. That's the same thing in the UK and Europe. Uh, companies, are small ones especially, are still struggling to return to where they were before the housing market too. So things have been very difficult over the last uh, period since 2009, seven or eight years. It's a very long time without a full recovery to where people were before. In fact, I saw some figures recently, Jason, which showed that uh, young people aged between 25 and 34 are now earning less than people of when I was 25 and 34, which is a very long time ago. They're actually earning less in real terms than those people then. That shows how bad things have been for a whole layer of people. Now, we're told by the economists and the official organizations, first of all, they never saw this coming. They said everything was fine in the world economy. Uh, economics works, the market economy works. Um, Supply and demand is fine, and there's nothing to worry about. 
Then it came crashing down, but they have no real explanation of why that happened, except to say to people they've got to pay. They've got to pay to bail out the banks. They've got to have increased taxes. They've got to see cuts in their spending on social security benefits, all to pay for this loss. And that austerity program that we've heard about um, has replaced what used to be regarded as a positive and boom-like world. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be an explanation of what happened. Um, and therefore, we can only expect if the economists go on thinking this way, that it will happen again, because nothing has been done to provide an alternative. Um, that's one field. The other field, as you mentioned, was the Keynesians. Now, for those listeners who don't know, back in the 1930s, there was a British economist called John Maynard Keynes. And that was the same time when there was a big crash in the stock market, followed by a long depression. John Maynard Keynes came up with some explanations of why that happened. He said there was a collapse in demand. Consumers couldn't buy any goods. Workers couldn't buy any goods. And the answer was for the, eventually for the government to step in and spend a lot of money to try and boost uh, the economies, uh, putting, um, getting people back to work on work programs, and then uh, through that income increase that they would start spending again. He proposed that. He didn't get much success in getting it adopted by the governments. And even the Roosevelt in the administration in the 30s didn't really take it up. And certainly that was the case in Europe. But that has become the main alternative to what you described, Jason, as the trickle-down economics or the complacent economics, if you like. That, that was Andrea, that. actually, who made sorry, that comment. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. So um, that's the alternative to complacent economics, that there's nothing wrong. Everything's the best possible world in all worlds. The opposite uh, view is from Keynes that all we need to do in the modern economy is to give the economy, when it gets into trouble, a bit of a kick start. His phrase was to pump prime it so that it moved up again, and then we could go back to trickle-down economics. We could go back to just hoping that the market will give us all a job and incomes. Uh, my books are aiming to show listeners and the readers of them that those two options that economics provides are not the only ones, and also they're both really failures in actually solving the problem of continual and recurring slumps in our production, job losses, as you know, uh, the growth of the Rust Belt America and all the technology hits that people have suffered, not only in the US, but in Europe as well. There is other alternatives to these two particular programs or, or scenarios in economics. One of the things, though, is that, is that you particularly make the point that, well, some of the scholars in, in the last book, which is The World in Crisis, make the point that because there's a lot of people who feel like Keynesian or Ken, Ken, Keynes, Keynesian. Uh, we say Keynes in the UK. Yeah. We say yeah. <laughs> um, is the solution? Of course, we're in a, um, a a Trump a Trump administration right now, which is yeah, really crony capitalism. But I'll just that's probably all I'll get into. Uh, <laughs> on that. Uh, Pretty accurate. <laughs> um, but there's a lot. What you're generally saying is. You know, you could spend the money and it's going to prov actually prolong, uh, possibly prov not prevent, just delay the inevitable crash, crashes or even delay the recovery. Yeah, because what, what, we're, what we argue in World in Crisis, and just to tell you listeners that World in Crisis is a book 
of with about 12 or 15 authors from all over the world who've reached a similar conclusion about what's wrong with their economies and also mm-hmm. the world economy. And what we're saying there is that we're in, an, in, an, in modern economies where the main job of business is not to provide what we need, but to make money. It's a, it's a, it's a money-making economy. And therefore, if money is not being made, nothing gets produced for what people need and the services that they require. Of course, money can be made in providing those services. But if profits or money making starts to decline, then what happens is that businesses stop producing, they lay off workers and they close down their businesses and go elsewhere or or get taken over by somebody else. So what is key and what our book is arguing is what is key is not the level of demand, not the amount of spending that goes on, but whether businesses are making good profits, whether they're profitable or not. And what Marx found out, that's why we look to Marx, he looked at the capitalist economies 150 years ago, mainly the British one, and he found that the real flaw in capitalist economy was because it was a money-making economy, but yet it had a tendency for its own profitability to start to decline because it competed capitalists and businesses competed so severely with each other, they started spending much more on technology and machinery and less on their labour force in the amount of people that they employed. So we got rising unemployment, what Marx called at the time a reserve army of labour. People are left on the side waiting to be used by capitalists as and when they want. Um, and But the increase in machinery costs in competition was sufficient to start lowering the profitability of those industries and those companies over time. Not all the time, but over a period of time it will. So there's always that tendency of driving profitability down. So, Andrea, Jason, there's a contradiction. There's economies trying to produce more, but in so doing under a capitalist system, they tend to reduce their profitability. So it's a contradiction between increased productivity and reduced profitability. That sounds hmm. rather contradictory. And Actually, should- to, me, to me, it doesn't sound contradictory because you gave one of the big secrets, I think, uh, in what you said, the, tech, the cost, the, the amount of cost for the products that make, because the competition pushes the prices down. And yeah. so the, the amount you're actually getting, the companies are making per the amount they're actually spending is going down. So, Certainly a tendency for that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the tendency there is to push the profitability down across the board. Uh, exactly. And when the profitability is going down, any sort of idea that there's a trickle-down economic, which I don't necessarily agree with at all from an economic theory, but the tendency there is there isn't, like these comp- you see these large numbers, but the, the truth is they need less and less labor at the same time. They're spending more and more to make that the next widget. I mean, so it's like if we take one widget, it's like they're spending more and more and more to the point that a lot of companies now are getting, you're getting to the point that they're manufacturing stuff and getting cents on the dollars per widget, you know. And and then if there's any kind of supply chain disruption, they're going to go under as soon as they have one natural disaster or anything really because their margins are so slim. Yeah, what we've seen, if listeners will know, they hear about the huge profits that the big companies that we know in the media like Apple or Microsoft or Amazon or so on, they're making big cash profits, salting it abroad. But, but, but that's, 
to not to recognize the huge number of smaller companies, medium-sized companies who are struggling, just making enough profit to pay off their interest on their debt, what we call uh, zombie companies in economics. These companies are not growing. They're not in putting on more labor. They're not expanding. Uh, they're struggling to just survive. And you have that big difference between the very big companies we know all about and the whole uh, thousands and thousands of medium and small companies and how they're not doing so well. And the overall profitability of an economy is set by the whole range of companies. And it doesn't take much if a lot of small companies start to go under for it to, to br bring the whole uh, shebang right down, including putting pressure on the big ones. I know. And, and one of the things that uh, I just read, in fact, for the U.S. at least, that the rate of retail failure since the Trump took presidency is the highest in the last few years. That means more and more stores are just straight out going out of business into bankruptcy more than in all of the Obama administration. So we have that exactly playing out uh, in, the, in the retail market in our country. Um, yeah, and one of the other facts we I noticed last week, which I was recorded by the IMF itself, the IMF met in Washington, it meets every uh, six months to discuss the economy, and one of the things they wrote in their report was that never the, the level of debt held by companies in the US has never been as high as it is now, and the, the number of companies who are struggling to to service that debt has never been as high as it was and, uh, since the Great Recession. So that shows you the risks and the frailty of the American economy at the moment, one of the better economies in, in capitalism. Here we have uh, tremendous confidence and boom in the stock market going on and Trump's going to sort out all the problems and he's going to spend some money on the bridges and roads that have been falling apart, so we're told. But at the same time, the, the vast swathe of American in, of American business is, is struggling. Profitability hasn't recovered to where it was in 2008-9. And although big profits are being made by a small number of companies, uh, the vast majority are finding it very difficult. So that's the, the essence, in modern terms, of what our book, The World in Crisis, is about. It's to tell readers and listeners, look, you need to understand what's going on with the profitability of companies and whether that process is forcing companies into difficulty and will and how often that will happen in a cycle of profit, if you like, in various countries. It's, it's a law a law of profitability that doesn't just apply to the United States, but it applies across the world and increasingly does so. Because what do we learn from the Great Recession, those of us who just think about it? For the first time, we had a Great Recession, which hit everybody, not just one or two countries, but the whole world. I can tell you, Andre and Jason, and perhaps you can guess, which two countries didn't have a slump in the Great Recession in the world? There's only two. I think and one was Iceland. Uh, Iceland had a very bad slump. So oh. then I was wrong. So I don't know then which countries didn't well, have one, slump then. One was Australia. Okay. Australia didn't have any reduction in their national output. They slowed down, but they didn't actually fall. Every other country did. What's the other one? It's a very big one. Okay. China. Who are, China? China. China. China was growing at 10% when the Great Recession hit. It slowed to 8%. That's all. And okay. where, does, where does Australia send all its exports of coal, iron ore, and other minerals which it produces in its main thing that it produces? To China. 
Oh, uh, okay. Yep. Okay. So that's why Australia didn't go under as well, because it was living off China's growth. Those well, are the only two. So, Michael, so what prevented what prevented China from having this? I mean, I, I could guess, but... Well, the main, I, would, I would argue the main difference was that in China, yes, there are numbers of private companies and foreign companies there, and the profitability law that I've just been talking about applies to them, and profitability was falling in the private sector or the business sector in China, which has been increasing in size, but it's still not the dominant force in China. The dominant force is their huge state companies and banks and the government who control everything very uh, strictly so that the, for the government can say, okay, well, things are getting more difficult. We're going to uh, boost investment in our state companies. Uh, even if we run up more debt, we're going to do that in order to keep our economy going. And the private sector will get squeezed and we don't care because that's the way this uh, the one-party state communists operating in China. So they, they have a sort of directed, state-directed plan and investment which they can force through, uh, and therefore they're not subject to the vagaries of world trade and the market as all the other countries are. So, Michael, you predicted the Great Recession before it happened. What led you to, to being able to say, hey, this is coming? Well, I think the argument was, first of all, um, to say to myself, well, what's happening with profitability in the major economies? And what I noticed was, while they had risen during what uh, some of our economists call the neoliberal period, that's the period from when Reagan took over in the early 1980s in the US and Thatcher took over in Britain, we had the crushing of the trade unions, privatization of much of industry, we had deregulation of the banks, which we know have now led to a disaster, and deregulation in general. But all that was aimed to drive profitability up, which had reached quite a low level in the 1980s. It had a lot of slumps then, and profitability in the major economies was low. And they did get the profitability up at our expense over the next 20 years or so. But by the end of the 20th century, profitability had peaked and had started to fall. And from about 1997 in the US, a bit later elsewhere, profitability started to fall. So uh, they tried to stop this by spending money, by increasing credit. And we had this boom in the housing market in the US. We had a boom of credit across the world. New financial uh, shenanigans went on to try and cover up this fall in profitability. But it can't last. And I, I saw that profitability was falling, got the stats, worked that out and saw that the credit boom that everybody was enjoying between, say, 2002 after 9-11 up to about 2007, based on mainly in the housing market, uh, couldn't possibly last. And about 2006, 5, 6, the housing market started to fall back and profitability also started to, to drop quite fast. So when I was writing my book uh, around about then, I said, look, this is we're heading for a slump because of the way things are going on profitability and on this uh, dangerously uncontrolled uh, housing market. And I said, it'll happen about 2009-10. Well, Andre and Jason, I was wrong because it actually happened in 2008. It was quick. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. But I mean, that's not bad. No, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's pretty good. It's, you know, that, that was pretty good. We'll give it to you. I mean, well, I wasn't the only one. I would say there was about three or four other economists, also sort of, if you might say, not in the orthodox stream, who also saw this coming uh, as well, the credit crash and everything. 
But 99% of economists didn't see it coming. The ones in the mainstream, as I call them, those who support the, the market economy system and those that uh, also get make their money out of it, they never saw this coming. The, the officials, if, I don't know if you remember that, uh, who was the uh, Federal Reserve Bank uh, chief at the time. He was called Maestro. Uh, his name be, be, was uh, Alan Greenspan. Do you remember him? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he at the time uh, was very strongly in favor of the expansion of the financial sector and boosting credit and so on. Um, Another famous economist at the time who was also in the uh, Clinton re- uh, administration before, Larry Summers, was very much yep, in favor of yep. deregulating. These people were saying things are fine. We've got new systems of finance. And it's, it's great that we're expanding the housing market in this uncontrolled manner. After the crash came down, old Alan Greenspan was called before Congress and asked what went wrong. And he said, well, I just don't know. I have no. It was a complete shock to me. I thought our economic understanding and system was clear, and I can't believe that this has happened. This must be a chance in a billion. He said that this could have happened. Well, some of us didn't agree that it was a chance in a billion. We thought it was quite probable, given that we were looking at different sort of data uh-huh. than Mr. Greenspan. One of the things is that is. Uh, in private, you know, when I'm talking over beers with friends, I, I tell them, like, there is, even in the stock market, there's supposed to be a formula for what stocks are valued. And when you compare it to profitability, most of these stocks are way overpriced, even now. Like, so what do you think is going to happen? Eventually, that's got to correct because that they're must not, correct. there's not yeah. a, a match to the formula of. Profitability to stock price versus assets. So, yeah. If you remember in the uh, high tech boom at the end of the 1990s and the dot com uh, companies, all those exploding up, uh, the, in the stock market, quite a lot of uh, analysts or economists try to measure the value of a company by its price relative to its earnings, so its market price. So, let's say if a, if a company's worth $100 a share, and the earnings per share are $3 a share, you you divide the three into the 100 and you get what they call a price to earnings ratio of about 30 there in that case. Now, uh, a comp- what that means is it would take a shareholder, somebody who bought one share in that company $100 and received $3 in earnings dividends each year, you see it would take him 30 years before you got your money back. Oh, wow. If you, if you just did it by collecting your dividend. But of course, what share stockhold investors do is they buy a stock at $100 and they're hoping it will go to $200. So they sell it when it goes up. So they're actually making a capital gain. They're not so much worried about what they earn each year in dividends. But you can measure the value of a company in that way. You can say, well, this company, I have to pay $100 for its share and the earnings I get each year is $3. So the price to earnings ratio is about 30 plus. Now, the average ratio across the U.S. stock market for the last 50 years, the average, is about 15, maybe a little less. So anything above 15 starts to look expensive. Anything above 20 starts to look a bit worrying. Anything up to 30 and you're beginning to think you're in the stratosphere with no oxygen left and you're bound to come crashing back. And that's in the dot-com boom. 
the ratio got to 40. Oh. And as you can imagine, it came crashing back uh, below that figure afterwards and went way down below, down to 10 for a while. Now, since then, the ratios improved and then it crashed a bit in the Great Recession. Currently, that ratio, I think, is around 21. So it's getting a bit high. And with the Trump boom, it's getting higher every day. I see one of the stock market indexes, which is called the NASDAQ. Um, the NASDAQ measures all the companies that are in tech companies and comes up with an index. They've just broken yesterday a record high. So the stock market is booming, but the earnings are hardly rising. I saw figures to show that earnings are rising in the US and better than most by something like four to five percent. So if you've got a doubling of the stock market price and a small rise in the earnings, you can see that that price earnings ratio is going to go well above 21 at this rate. And it's going to go back into the dangerous areas. And then we could have another crash in a year or two. We'll yeah, I, think, I think this is where even our listeners and I think the general public just don't understand how separated the stock market is from the actual earnings of these companies. And I think, yeah. Yeah. I think if, I mean, what you're saying is, is right on par when I look at the numbers. I would, except for a few companies, mostly stay away from almost all stocks right now because, yeah, it's exactly what you said. They're overpriced for based on what they're actually producing. Like, people don't understand this because investors in the states and in the world seem to be too emotional to get the fun, fundamentals down of how they're supposed to invest. Um, and you see these great stock market numbers. And and this is part of what's contributing to the anger in society, right? Because everyone's doing well, but what people don't understand is those stock market numbers are a sham. Like, yeah. they're all fake. They're not based on what the companies are actually making. Well, it's a bit like, uh, you know, the game, the game of the children play musical chairs? Um, that uh, or pass the parcels, another one. You uh -huh. can make money if you've got the parcel and you can pass it to the next person for a higher price before the parcel is opened up and found to have nothing in it. Um, so you, so the way stock market investors make money is by buying at a price and try to sell at a higher price. And when everybody thinks things are going to get better, the prices can keep rising, and uh, a lot of people can make a lot of money for a while. But somebody's going to be left with the parcel, and when they open the parcel and find nothing in it, those are the people who lose, and then the situation reverses. I think, and we have to also, usually the people who are going to probably win those games are not people anymore. They're mostly no. going to be supercomputers because yes. they can make trades faster than you can, and they'll yep. by the time that most people can make a decision, um, the numbers are already shifting. That's the amount of volatility and kind of musical chair game you're talking about in the market right now is at that level that you literally could be hours of difference between the the prices and and yeah, they call that uh, uh, as you know high frequency trading. And there right. are companies that specialize in making sure they can get a trade in before somebody else and get out of it before somebody else. But the vast majority of us, of course, aren't in the stock market, we think, uh, because we don't buy stocks and sell stocks every day 
or buy bonds and so on. Well, but our pension funds, if we have them, or our retirement accounts, if we have them, that's a different matter. Yeah, I think quite, the managers I think of those accounts are, are investing for us in this stock market and losing for As people discovered in 2008, it's even worse than that. Like you have not-for-profits, you have schools, you have like school yeah. districts, you have municipalities, yeah. like city governments, all yeah. are in the stock market. They're all invested in the stock market. And what we found out, what people, if they were really paying attention in 2008, would have found out is that all of those things were in jeopardy because people jumped into the stock market and this, the, the housing market and the derivative market, which we could have a whole show on the derivative market um, <laughs> and what exactly happened with that. But yeah. And behind that, the point of the book, Andres, behind that is to explain to the readers that the reason why the stock market can't just keep on going up uh, or it's it, because it's like Roadrunner. It's charging off the edge of the cliff. It might appear to be going on and on and on as it is at the moment, but everything's disappeared underneath. And what the cliff is profits. And when the when you come to the end of profitability and it's and it slumps, Yes, the stock market and credit can keep you flying in the air for a bit longer, but eventually you come crashing down. Which, if it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's it sounds so common sense and simple, but it's not how our economy works anymore. <laughs> so, well, um, the, the point of the book is to say to people, look, uh, we've been in, uh, since if you like, the modern economies that we talk about, 150 years old, building up industries, people, uh, companies uh, competing on on a market to buy and sell things and to employ people, but only investing if they make profits. It's a profit-making economy. What we're saying in the book is a profit-making economy has a fatal flaw in it. There are different ways of running an economy, but the majority of the world at the moment is run under a profit-making economies, and they have it has a serious flaw, and that flaw is that it cannot produce all the things we need or give us all the services that we require when we know that there's something like 4 billion people in the world who are still earning no more than $2 a day, mm. basic poverty. We have 200 million people officially unemployed in countries around the world. Uh, these things are going on, and yet we're told that this is the best possible system, that we should just have a profit-making economy in the world, and that's how things are, will be forever and ever and ever. But it hasn't always been like that. In any way, this system has a fatal flaw, and the flaw is, ironically, the fact that it cannot continue to make decent profits. It keeps coming into struggle between producing things for a profit, and that that's why we get recurrent crises. It's a, it's a it's, right, a, right. it's a nasty, irrational situation where suddenly we're in a position where unless there's profit to be made, nothing gets made and nothing gets serviced that we need. Now, Michael, I also know that beyond world and crisis, you wrote another book last year, The Long Depression. And that book goes into you describing the aftermath of the slump as a new depression like the 1930s. I wanted to ask you. Where do you believe we are in that cycle right now, and where do you believe we're going to be heading? Yeah, I think in in that book, uh, guys, uh, called the Long Depression, um, I argued that yeah, we have 
Uh, capitalism and the market economy has regular slumps, booms and slumps, about every eight to 10 years. The last one was in 2000, before the Great Recession in 2001, and we had one in 1990 in the US, and then early 1980s and so on. But I singled out in this book the idea that on occasion, over a long, over quite long periods, we get into a recession which isn't just an ordinary one. You don't get out of it. You stay in a depression, like the 1930s in in America and in Europe, and also in the late 1880s and 1890s in Europe and the U.S. as well. So you have a slump or a depression that lasts for a long time. What I mean by that was growth doesn't go back to where it was before. Employment doesn't fully go back. People's incomes never return for for years and years and years to where they were before uh, after a big crash or slump. And sometimes it even requires outright war, as it was in the Second World War, to bring this depression to an end. Uh, Now, that doesn't happen very often, but I argue in this book that this is the sort of period we're in now. Since the Great Recession, uh, output hasn't returned to the same growth rates we've seen before. Uh, President Trump says he wants to get the U.S. economy growing at 4% a year, which is what we used to get back in the 60s and 70s. He says that's what we've got to get it back to. Well, he may wish it, but in fact, it's not happened at all since the Great Recession. In the Great Recession, the U.S. economy slumped by 5%, national output contracted by 5%. And Mm. since then, it's been failing to grow more than 2% a year up until now 2017. And on Friday, we shall get the figures for the first quarter of uh, 2017. And we're going to see a growth rate in the U.S., which is probably no more than 1%. Things are not getting any better at all. Uh, The idea of 4% is is dreamland, uh, uh, given the state of the U.S. economy. And the U.S. economy is one of the better ones. So you can see that uh, we have a depression. That's what I argue in this book. Now, you pose the question, when's that going to come to end? Well, all... Good things come to an end, and also all bad things come to an end. Nothing stays the same forever. And I suspect that what is required and what the Long Depression argues and what the World in Crisis book argues is that what is key here is whether profitability improves. How can profitability improve? Well, it can improve if there's a massive cutback in the costs by for businesses in the U.S. and elsewhere probably through another slump, so that they lay off more workers, they close down some of these inefficient zombie companies, and you get a leaner and fitter uh, capitalist um, economy and businesses, and then they've got better profitability, and then they grow again. So the way to get out of this depression will be another slump, ironically. You know, let let, let me throw something else out there that I did not see in World of Crisis. The move toward automation... Because automation will increase the profitability of these companies, but at the cost of labor. Yeah. And uh, um, in the Long Depression book, I do deal with automation in one of the chapters. Uh, The World in Crisis, some of the authors have uh, go on about it a little bit. But I think the main point to make here about automation, think about it. Back in the 19th century, mechanization, it's it's the same thing. Only the development of robots... An artificial intelligent is an accelerated form of general mechanization. Capitalists try to avoid uh, having to spend too much on their labor force by employing machinery to replace workers and increase the productivity of the workers that they keep. But in so doing, as Andrea has pointed out, the, the cost increases 
for for machinery and plant and so on. And this can actually bring about a fall in profitability. So one of the ironies of the big developments in robots, artificial intelligence, and all these things that we're beginning to see, which some economists in America have estimated will wipe out 50% of the jobs that we have at the moment, uh, including the jobs of economists, by the way, who will be, and as Andre pointed out, be replaced by robots who will make all these decisions. Um, in that situation, uh, that would seem that that will increase the productivity, but it wouldn't necessarily increase the pro- profitability of companies because they would be severely in competition, spending a lot of money. If if one company buys a robot and has an artificial intelligence algorithm which works so much better than they've got, they'll be out of business. So they have to start getting these robots. Everybody starts buying the same thing to compete. They increase their costs. They increase their intensification of competition. This can lead to a fall in profitability. So one of the ironies yeah, right, right. of the development of robotization is it could intensify this profitability crisis I'm talking about. So it could be bad for the worker and bad for the companies at the same time. It is. It will actually pose in the minds of, of, the, of those who are listening now that the future of capitalism will be at stake itself over the next 25, 30 years as we accelerate into this new robot world. Uh, and then you'd have to ask, well, if the robot world's going to produce all the things we need and workers don't have to work so much, do we want a system where workers are just unemployed and handed out bits of money? Or wouldn't it be better to have a system where we share out the work and the, and the produce and income produced by the robots? But that would mean changing the ownership of the robots, because who's going to own these robots? Just a small number of people, the, the 1% controlling all the big companies will then control all the robots, and all the rest of us will be on the, on the side, uh, scraping a living without any proper work. Much better would be a system where we control all the big companies and the robots, and we plan in the interests of everybody, democratically, to meet the needs and services, and reduce all our hours, not just have a f- say 30 million people without any work and 5 million people with work, intense work, why not have 35 million people all working 10 hours a week rather than 40 or 50? Well, I think that's wonderful. And I think we're, we're, we're painting this picture of a coming doom and gloom. I, I, I want your honest answer. What do you what do you theorize? What do you predict? Are we going to come out of this? Are we going to find a way to peaceably resolve this? Or well, I, is yeah. Well, all I, I think the books try to tell tell guys that this if we go on like we are, things won't get better, and they will get worse. There'll be periods right. when they get a bit better, but that but the the general view looking for with climate change, global warming robotization, increased inequality, and these continual slumps of profitability, things won't get better if we go on as we are. So what the listeners and readers of the books have to think about is we have to think about alternatives and we have to organize and campaign for them and explain the issues to the wider public about how we cannot expect our children and our grandchildren to have even the sorts of conditions that we've had. This is the horrible thought. I mean, I I say that not because I'm some sort of wild lefty, but the McKinsey Institute, which is a big management consultant, actually put a report out a couple of years ago in which they said it is now pretty clear that billions of people in the world will have a lower standard of living 
than people do now if we go on as we are. And that's the McKinsey Institute, not me. Uh, and that's an indication that it's, it can only be resolved eventually by political and social action on the part of people realising they need to change things. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, think, things get worse. Yeah, and I think you gave a great summary of the dynamic that actually pushes it to be worse. And, and, and what the solution is, is that Unfortunately, that that's why I'm proud that we we brought you on the show today to kind of clarify some of these things, because that isn't this narrative isn't what's out there in the media to actually educate people on what's actually going on um, with the companies and the economies, even at at a single company like we're talking about zombie companies. So, and you're right, the answer is that we have to get involved in the political process and start thinking about a different different economic systems maybe resource based systems or uh, something that isn't quite so tying labor and the ownership of the robots to the 1% yes it's going to come boil down in the end to uh, we're having a system where everything's owned uh, well, I don't mean everything I don't mean people's uh, iPhones I mean all the big uh, production units in the world and service units in the world have got to be commonly owned, not privately owned by a small group of people who only produce for profit. We need common ownership of the major levers of economic power, including robots and everything else. I don't mean the corner shop round at the end of the, of the block, but I do mean the big banks, the big industries, the Amazons and so on. We need a common ownership of these big companies so that they can then be organized in a plan which will meet, reduce our hours and still meet our needs and services, which could be done. Just we don't make decisions about how the resources of our country or the world are really distributed. Uh, we supposedly have a democratic system of Congress and other things which does this, but all, huge amounts of money are wasted on military expending, on arms, on advertising on all kinds of uh, completely unproductive uh, expenditure when they could be if it were properly organized, commonly owned and planned to meet the needs of people on things like transport, housing, health, education, all these are things that people really need. Uh, do we need the latest uh, SUV with all the bits inside or do we need a decent public transport system? These are the questions which have to be posed in an alternative economy. It's just really hard to have a, uh, a positive outlook because though what you say makes, makes perfect logical sense, I just feel that the people that are the controlling 1% are going to be so stubborn mm. as they would let it hurt themselves before they let it be dispersed out amongst the public. Well, it's that's we're getting into the political area now. I mean, how you change things. Obviously, we're discussing at the moment, and the books only discuss the economic things, what's right. wrong, what needs to be changed. But what you pose is, could we change things for the better uh, so that we have a better economy through political action without the resistance of the 1% uh, blocking us? Uh, I don't know. I would All I would say is if, if there was a... Uh, a big enough and powerful enough uh, and organized enough uh, majority in the US or elsewhere to change things, 
then even even the powerful one percent as we see them couldn't be able to stop it i think but that is a political issue which uh, no doubt you'd want to debate over and over on on your show um but you can't com- that won't happen you wouldn't get a powerful uh, force to change things for the majority unless people understand a what's wrong with it the current thing and that there could be something better because i think you'd have to say that if you asked most people they would say well things are pretty bad and they but they have no real clear idea of why and also no clear idea what alternative there is uh, and therefore that's why things don't change often because people know that things aren't right for them and for the people they know in the neighborhood and the economy which they see in the media but they also don't really have what's the alternative we're told the alternative sometimes is sort of i don't know north korea or uh, China and of course that puts people off but there there's a perfectly good democratic alternative to, to build things in common together to produce things for the needs of the people that we don't need to resort to some of these old dictatorships that's not the alternative right people just aren't educated as to the alternatives yeah now why do you believe governments decided to transfer private sector debt to the public sector by bailing out banks rather than letting them fail, which would seem to be more within the lines of capitalist ideals to just let a failing business fail. Yeah. I think there are two reasons. One, um, it was such a widespread crisis that uh, letting too many banks fail could actually have brought all the banking system down and many companies with it. As we know, in a case of the U.S., um, some of the most famous names in American industry were virtually bust, General Motors, Ford, and so on. They had to be specially bailed out by the government. And there were lots of other companies who had borrowed money from the banks and run up big bond debts. And uh, if the banks had failed and weren't there to support them, uh, then they would have gone down as well. And each bank was almost dependent on another. So the whole system was so financially integrated that uh, it would... Uh, if they let more than just Lehman's go bust, which is what they did in the banking industry, and a lot of people still complain in the mainstream banking area about letting that happen, then they would have uh, brought the whole system down economically. And as we know, uh, they had to put up a plan which is going to spend $780 billion in order to uh, bail out the banks uh, through what was called TARP at the time. Uh, and they also had to bail out the big credit insurance companies. The other reason was that a lot of the famous hedge fund banks and investment banks that we know about now, like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, had lent money, huge amounts of money, and if they hadn't got it back, so they would have gone down. And the political and economic system of Wall Street and Congress is so linked together that uh, many they, many people in government are all were also in the banking system. They were linked together in a crony relationship, and they couldn't possibly allow one or other to go down. And if the whole thing had gone down, it would also be exposed politically and socially just how rotten the capitalist system was. So it had to be saved. The banks had to be saved. The Goldman Sachs of these world had to be saved. And they had to be put back on their feet. Uh, and we have to pay for it. And we pay for it by all the debt being shifted onto the 
government books. And the irony is that the media of uh, the banks and now go on moaning about how big the public debt is. But uh, the public debt was created by the private debt collapsing. Yeah. So what impact do you think that Brexit is going to have in the European Union? And in turn, how could bad things for the European Union have a bad impact for us here in the US? Well, uh, the European area is a very important economic area. Uh, the US has uh, a lot of investment there. US Big US companies, they invest heavily there. The US banks invest heavily there. If you come to London and go to the city of London, most of the city of London's big banks are actually American, and they, Americans use the American banks and industry use the UK in order to invest, to export, and so on, and get to various services, trade with uh, the continent of Europe. Now, if Britain's going to be separated from the continent of Europe in the sense that it no longer has a free trade area with Europe, it no longer has free movement of labor, and in particular, it has no free movement of the financial services industry from the city of London into the rest of Europe. This is going to be a serious disadvantage for American banks and companies. And they've been looking elsewhere. They've been looking to go to Ireland or elsewhere where they can set up um, their operations. But up to now, London, the city of London and Britain has been a big, important, as it were, um, trading post into Europe for American industry. And if that's restricted, it's bad news for American finance sector in particular, apart from being a terribly bad news for the British financial sector as well. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that if Europe was to go into a, a downturn as a result of the breaking up of the European Union, which is certainly possible if the Union as a whole broke up, I don't think that's going to happen yet. Uh, but it's certainly that would, if that did happen, then a major trading area for America would suffer, uh, would be reduced. This would also have an impact on investment back into America because now the world is so heavily integrated that if one area gets into trouble, it affects other areas. It's still the case that if the US sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold, but if the European area also sneezes, then everybody else is going to start to have some symptoms of a cold as well. So mm. uh, nothing can be separated anymore. Anybody who tells you we can avoid uh, by doing things, we can avoid crises in other places by cutting ourselves off from trade, putting up walls against Mexicans and uh, stopping immigration, and then this way that um, a country will be safe from the rest of the world's uh, problems, it's certainly not the case anymore. But, but in a way, isn't like stuff like the Brexit, which tends to cut off um, capital flows, exact, doesn't it just kind of make it harder to hide the musical chairs of the lack of profits? Meaning well, that the, 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 the yeah. impacts will be sev more severe and more noticeable right from the start. I think it's very bad news for the British capitalist system, the British market. I mean, obviously, that's not the view of a considerable section of the population. And it's not the view compounded in the media. But this is bad news because Britain's already Britain's, Britain's currency, the pound, has dropped 20% on the news. So now, if when I was in the States only recently, I'm now feeling the hit as I try to buy anything in dollars because <laughs> it's very expensive for us people holding just a pound. Um, that's one thing. But also it's going to affect British industry, British trade. 
Their productivity in Britain is very poor. Uh, this is going to reduce the profitability of the companies as well. So Britain's going to have a tough time coming out of it. And just to say that we're not out of it yet. Brexit was being agreed by a referendum vote last year, and the application to leave the European Union has been handed in at the end of March. But now there's going to be two years of negotiation, and it even could take longer in order to separate Britain out of the European Union from all its regulations, trading agreements, and so on. This is going to be, I don't know if you can imagine, it's like taking off, you've got a, a nasty burn on your arm and you've put an elastoplast on it, and now you've got to gradually take that uh, elastoplast off without too much pain, but it's going to take an awful long time. And this is, this is even that is bad enough because that's going to create all kinds of uncertainty and uh, worry about what the future are, is. European citizens who live in Britain are now under threat of being thrown out, not having the rights that they had before. And this is that's a lot of people. But there is also a lot of British people working in the European Union on the continent. What will happen to them? Will they have to come back to Britain? These are all the questions that we don't know the answers to until the negotiations are completed over the next two years. So we've come to the top of the hour. Are there any public appearances, any anything that you're doing that you'd like to tell the audience about? Well, can I just tell them that um, if they want to know more about what I've got to say, I have a blog. It's called uh, the Michael Roberts blog, and it's uh, you can find it under the next recession wordpress.com. And I do a regular sort of analysis of big events going on economically and lots of theoretical discussions too. And I also have a Facebook site called the Michael Roberts blog, Facebook. So I'm doing things there, guys, daily about things that are happening in the world economy or information that you might find useful. So you guys, if you want to, the, the listeners, anybody else, then they should try and get a hold of those and see what you think. Um, I'm also going to be coming over to the States in uh, June. There's a big uh, jamboree takes place in New York this time called the Left Forum. Um, and they have a lot of speakers there discussing all sorts of things going on in the world, socially, politically, everything, including economics. And I'll be there with, amongst other economists uh, speaking on the book, The World in Crisis, amongst other things. So maybe I'll see some of you guys there as well. We want to uh, thank you for coming on the show. I know uh, this probably, uh, we're very happy to have you. And we hope when you get some more, another book, or we hope that we can bring you back on the show later, kind of discuss and kind of educate the listeners on what's going on in the world. And let's hope things are a bit better when we come back. Let's hope. <laughs> let's hope. 